0: Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Rablick and thank you for joining me for this podcast. Some of you will know that uh, there is a parliamentary inquiry happening at the moment, uh, being run by our Commonwealth Parliament on radicalisation and extremism. The inquiry has been prompted uh, in part because there is a an increase in um, activity in right-wing extremism in Australia and elsewhere. But we don't typically talk about right-wing extremism or even Islamist extremism in a way that allows us to contemplate uh, uh, more deeply what these things mean and how we grapple with them. So my guest today is Professor Greg Martin, who's an expert at Deakin University in the area of uh, terrorism, extremism, uh, and a a raft of of those areas in terms of social policy. He's going to help us explain and, and and. Play with a few of these concepts to see where uh, where things are now and where things might be going to. Uh, Greg, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Tom. Thanks for the invitation. Good to be with you.
0: Uh, thank you so much. Now, I typically ask guests just to outline their background um, uh, because not everyone is that well known to all the people that will be picking up on this. How would you describe your career thus far if you had to put it on the back of an envelope?
1: Uh, well, two words come to mind. Uh, Forrest Gump. Um, that's probably not going to help listeners so much. Um, but it's a way of saying that I've uh, stumbled uh, through my career uh, with some happy um, successes that I can't claim credit for. One of them is that I... Uh, had an opportunity years ago doing undergraduate studies at Monash, uh, focusing on Southeast Asia, uh, particularly Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, to get an, a scholarship to do a PhD. I thought I'd better choose an interesting topic that'll sustain my interest. So I looked at the growth of progressive democratic thought uh, led by a movement that was called the Renewal of Islamic Thought Movement, people like uh, Abdurrahman Wahid and Naholas Majid. And that led to um, a happy. PhD project. Uh, I didn't think it would lead to a career, but I I was right that I needed to choose a topic that would keep my interest up. Um, But it did lead to an academic career and I was able to look at civil society and progressive Islamic thought in Indonesia. And uh, I was conscious of the fact that at the other end of the spectrum, there were were, um, reactionary forces that were pushing against uh, that understanding of Islam. But I largely ignored focusing on that until the 9-11 attacks, and then I realized all of a sudden that I could no longer walk away from looking at Islamist extremism. And I looked around and wrote a book about the Jama-Islamia network in Southeast Asia, uh, conscious of the fact that there was, there was an extremist, um, a variety of extremist networks and communities uh, already forming. Of course, the October 12, 2002 bombings in Bali made that very clear. Uh, and then since then, I've I've focused to a large extent on looking at extremism. Not my choice. I, I still think that progressive thought uh, that uh, promotes pluralism and uh, works on open society, uh, including democracy, is a more interesting and uh, wholesome area to engage with. But it's interesting, the people I work with now who are trying to counter the effect of violent extremism in places like Indonesia or Malaysia, or the Philippines or Thailand are people who are overwhelmingly involved with uh, Islamic NGOs that are driven by those um, same progressive views and and want to try and make the world better. And for them, that means trying to limit the influence of extremists. So that's uh, my career in a nutshell. I I did my studies at Monash. I came to Deakin in the early 90s, um, worked for a uh, a couple of years abroad. It's been a year in Hawaii. at a uh, security studies college uh, was offered a chair in, in, Indonesian studies at Monash, the Fifth chair came back in 2007 to take that up and then was enticed to go to Deakin in 2015 to the Alfred Deakin Institute on citizenship and globalization to look at broader questions of Islamic movements, Islamic politics, uh, but also of course, this issue of, of extremism. Uh, and so, Uh, I can't claim credit for being foresighted uh, and uh, seeing how these movements would evolve, but it it turns out that I was right to focus on um, the contribution of Islam to democracy in Indonesia, that now for 20 years there's been a successful democratic uh, project. It's still been consolidated. It could still be reversed, but I, I think it deserves a positive framing because much has been achieved. And it it is due to many people who are inspired by their uh, Muslim faith. And of course, unfortunately, the last 20 years haven't seen us um, really comprehensively dealing with the problems of of, uh, Islamist-inspired violent extremism in the ways that we imagine. One thing is pretty clear now, Tom, 20 years on, is that military responses uh, can help in some contexts. Sometimes they're necessary, but they're not a solution, and often they make things worse.
0: Let me pick up on that point because you've opened up an interesting uh, uh, topic, um, and that is we. You mentioned twenty years on from nine eleven. We're not far from the twentieth anniversary of the nine eleven attacks. Um, we are observing, for example, in Afghanistan, a particular. Um, a movement of US troops out of Afghanistan and some interchange, uh, interchange and some violence between uh, the Taliban and others in Afghanistan. It, are we coming to a point where we're seeing this, this caper go full circle?
1: Well, I think what we've seen is that the so-called global war on terror, not a title that people are comfortable using nowadays for good reasons, but it, it came out of... Um, in some ways, an understandable response from the administration uh, of uh, George W. Bush after the 9/11 attacks—that that sense that we could solve this problem by going to war on terrorism hasn't worked any more successfully with terrorism than it has with, you know, the, the war on drugs. In other words, it's a complete failure, um, and it produces lots of perverse outcomes. Uh, there has been success in the last two decades with counter-terrorism in stopping groups like al-Qaeda carrying out audacious attacks of the sort that they did in 2001 or indeed in, in the, in the uh, decade that uh, followed, uh, including in Madrid, um, in, uh, in London. But since, for example, the, the um, so-called 7-7 attacks in London uh, on the uh, subway and, 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 and bus we haven't seen those sort of large-scale al-Qaeda-inspired attacks because intelligence has got much better, uh, police have got much better working with communities, and they've been able to basically shut down um, ambitious plots before they go into action. There's been some sad exceptions to that, and, of course, Islamic State managed to reverse that trend quite considerably when they were at the height of their powers. But I mention that by way of saying that you know it's not all... Um, a question of failure, but the side of counterterrorism globally, loosely described as the global war on terror, uh, that has, you know, least well worked has been uh, using massive military coalitions to fight insurgents in a way that, um, you know, to be fair, has succeeded in stopping Islamic State from maintaining their physical caliphate but hasn't made that insurgency go away and has fared even worse, arguably, against al-Qaeda. That response to 9-11 in Afghanistan was perhaps the most understandable response. The attack had been launched from al-Qaeda leadership in uh, Afghanistan with the support of, of um, uh, their Taliban hosts. I mean, I have to say that they were able to have a, a safe operating haven. So to go in there and use military force to... To chase down that Al Qaeda leadership sort of made sense, although there was never any end goal framed. So as a military mission, it was it was doomed to um, high levels of failure, precisely because of the, the inability to articulate what it was that the goal was, what the end state was. The invasion of Iraq in two thousand and three, I, I think, is widely accepted as being a mistake in conception. Uh, in focus and in execution and has certainly produced lots of perverse outcomes. It, it, it saw the creation of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became ISIS, Islamic State. Um, and of course, eventually that Islamic State caliphate was uh, wound up on the ground. But that insurgency is still very strong in northern Iraq and Syria and is now metastasized into Africa and other parts of Asia, including Afghanistan. And perhaps the most frightening immediate prospect is that this year, 2021, uh, we're going to see the collapse of um, a somewhat deeply flawed democratic government in uh, Kabul, in Afghanistan, and the rise again of the Taliban, and then not very deep into the shadows, offstage, al-Qaeda um, able to exploit that situation, uh, leaving al-Qaeda stronger 20 years on than they were at the time of the 9-11 attacks.
0: It's interesting when you reflect on two decades of of US policy in uh, in the Middle East and you think about the the attacks on Afghanistan that were mounted by the US not long after 9-11. You then look at the literal invasion of Iraq and then the... uh, the, the, uh, the mistake, the, the erroneous manner in which the US then decided to dismantle uh, the military, which provided recruits for um, Abu Musab al-Zakawi, uh, who was the head of uh, the, the al-Qaeda in Iraq at the time. I mean, it, it was a really bizarre decision.
1: Yeah, it was a bizarre decision, but it was the product of a series of uh, mistakes that were... Uh, predetermined or, or set up for failure um, by a certain closed-mindedness and a certain arrogance. Uh, we, you know, went into Iraq on, um, on false grounds. Uh, we couldn't articulate exactly what we we're going to do. The, the sort of the basic argument was that regime change would remove an ugly dictatorship in the form of the Saddam Hussein regime. And that would somehow... Lessen the the risk of weapons of mass destruction being used, and and um, given that that was never really demonstrated, and so that that uh, argument was fairly quickly put aside. The weapons of mass destruction uh, part of the justification couldn't be made. Uh, the second part of the justification was that this would uh, remove the chance for Al Qaeda to put down roots in Iraq, and of course removing Saddam Hussein. Uh, had the reverse effect. It actually opened up an s- opportunity space for al-Qaeda in the form of al zakawi's uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq group that became ISIS. And it was partly because of a failure to think about the nature of the Iraqi state and Iraqi society, to recognise that it was a Shia-majority society ruled by a Sunni elite, that the Ba'athist regime had managed to um, basically pick up Almost all educated professionals and technocrats, um, overwhelmingly Sunni, but also Shia, and uh, that whilst it was an instrument of Saddam Hussein, to then turn around and say we're going to get rid of the Baath regime and uh, and and the Baath organisation, and we're going to do the same thing with the military because it's it's, it's a Baathist project, uh, played into dynamics which led to. Uh, the Sunni minority committee feeling like they were under threat and that they had no choice but to side with the insurgents because the insurgents were Sunni insurgents.
0: The I mean, we obviously know what happened with the with the Islamic State being formed. al Zakawi, you know, was killed in a, a bombing raid in two thousand and six, and then you know over time the leadership changed. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi became the uh, the leader of, of ISIS, later declaring himself to be the Caliph in 2014. Um, but then turning ISIS into a, uh, a permanent ground target, it was much easier to fight a group that had claimed territory than, uh, than insurgents popping up left, right and centre, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, but therein lies the problem. I mean, no doubt the, the, the caliphate had to be fought. Um, it was a brutal, horrible project, and it had to be uh, the um, ending of that physical caliphate, that quasi-state, was important. But, you know, we are constantly in this uh, frame, beginning with the framing of global war on terror, of uh, thinking about a, mil- a military instrument, as it were, a hammer, and... Um, to uh, deal with the problem, the problem being defined by the instrument we're holding, so as the adage goes to the man with the hammer in his hand, the, the nail and and we thought that, that military solutions are what we needed to focus on. That worked with the air campaign uh, you know aided by uh, courageous work on the ground, including by the uh, Syrian um, uh, Kurds in the, in the uh, northern third of Syria. Uh, it, it worked in terms of of destroying that physical color fate, uh, but it, it wasn't addressing the problems that led to the emergence of the insurgency and the color fate. It hasn't made the insurgency go away. It's um, so it's you know it plays into this delusional thinking that we have that we def- we have defined our mission by happenstance uh, according to matters of convenience, and then. We're blind to recognizing um that we've got a problem because we don't we don't want to hear about it that That was the continuous story, not just in reporting from Iraq and Syria, but particularly with Af- Afghanistan. The reporting is always framed in terms of um momentary successes or narrow victories to the point where by twenty twenty we're negotiating with the Taliban accepting some kind of ceasefire that it really is simply limited to a reduction of aggression against American forces, not a reduction of violence overall, at least not a cessation of violence overall, um, as the Taliban wait out and bide their time so they can they can come back into a stronger position of political power in in this state that's been struggling because of decades of war that we've contributed to and yet not see it, uh, Just just sort of willful blindness because we want to see success, we don't want to see failure, we don't want to acknowledge uh, what we've achieved, what we haven't achieved, the unintended consequences, and we're going to have to deal with the problems we've made. But we just we, we, we're trying to walk away from them, and by you know closing our eyes and putting our fingers in our ears.
0: One of the conversations I had a while ago with a family member about you know whether it be conflict in the Middle East or. Uh, wars in the history like Vietnam and, and one of the observations I I made and I might want to test this with you uh, now and that is if you have no connection to the land if you have no connection to the space that you're on as a, as a force um, you're unlikely to be fighting for it you, you don't have any passion for it you're just there to do a job whereas uh, somebody like a uh, person who is I guess an insurgent or or, uh, a a long-term citizen of of a country like Afghanistan involved in a conflict has got a lot more to fight for. Uh, Am I um, correct in making that observation?
1: Yeah look I think it's it's a correct observation but it's only partially correct uh, Tom and what I mean is this I think we shouldn't downplay the fact that there's been tremendous sacrifice and suffering uh, from many, many people. I mean, we can talk about Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria, but let's talk about Afghanistan for the moment. Uh, the biggest suffering has come from the people of Afghanistan, no question. But the servicemen and women who were sent to Afghanistan um, from the international coalition, um, and particularly the local uh, Iraqi um, uh, security forces, um, but also police officers and contractors. There's been a lot of people who, well, many people who have given their life or have been, uh, injured for life, um, who gave their all on, on that mission. You know, there's not a lack of passion, a lot of lack of dedication. So it's not because it wasn't their land. Um, they they did their best. Uh, the failure that I'm describing is not a lack of passion on their part. Uh, it's it's a lack of clear framing of an end goal and working towards it in a with with clear strategy. That's that's the real failure, classic sort of failure of military strategy, the absence of it. Um, and it is true on the other side uh, that the calculation from the Taliban and other such insurgent groups is always, if we wait things out, the foreigners will go home. They'll get tired. And the the societies that sent them will get tired of spending the money. They'll get, they'll get tired of the uh, human toll and they'll want to end the war. No one wants an endless war. They'll go home. And so we just have to wait them out. Now, it would be wrong to say that, um you know, to slip into some sort of simplistic description of saying who values life more. It's not that Afghans don't value life. It's just that they were prepared, the Taliban was prepared to deal with heavy, um, heavy losses and to wait things out, knowing that that would, would win the day for them. And the foreign forces, who are occupying forces, for all of their passion and dedication and sacrifice, uh, couldn't sustain that indefinitely. Now,
0: yeah.
1: an occupying force can make sense if you have a very clear goal of what you're achieving and you work with the local partners, but we, we, we failed to really complete that picture.
0: I think the if we can move from the global perspective which we've touched on uh, to, to something more domestic, the the groups that we've spoken about, ISIS and Al Qaeda, have had some influence in Australia, uh, and fortunately, that influence hasn't uh, manifested itself in in, mul- in a huge number of instances of of extreme political violence. How would you assess the current state of play uh, domestically in terms of people that are influenced by an Islamist ideology irrespective of the organisational group?
1: I think the thing to recognise, Tom, is that um, these ideologies, you know, it's basically one singular ideology, different competing um, manifestations of it, but the, the, the central narrative is um, fairly consistent. It, it's, it's resilient, and despite what we, we may think of it, it's attractive. You know, it's a complete package. It offers a way to explain personal uh, suffering or at least personal angst in, in terms of you being a victim of a global conspiracy uh, that's against you, it's against your faith, and then offering a solution and also offering the sense of belonging and membership that comes from joining a group, one of the Band of Brothers. Um, people generally are not enticed to join a terrorist organisation. They're, they're enticed to join a band of brothers who are freedom fighters in the way that, you know, that narrative is understood and presented. And that that framing and that message continues to be very powerful and very strong. So we're still seeing arrests. We're told by, um, by ASIO and to some extent... Uh, we get this echoed by Australian federal police and state police, that their counterterrorism workload hasn't decreased since the ending of the Islamic State Caliphate. It actually is steadily increasing year on year. And uh, they are still uh, arresting people who were apparently allegedly intent on violence, were were attempting some sort of plot. Uh, They're mostly successful in interrupting those plots. And this is not just an Australian story, by the way. It's repeated around the world, but in our region, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, uh, counterterrorism police are doing really good work in interrupting plots before they come to fruition, thankfully. Uh, But it shows you that we're dealing with a resilient threat. And despite our wishful thinking, I'm thinking, for example, of of Prime Minister Julia Gillard a decade ago saying, I think in a very sincere fashion, that we need to move beyond the decade of 9-11 and move forward. Now, I, I can understand what she was saying, but as it turned out, it was dead wrong. Of course, to be fair, we didn't anticipate the uh, the emergence of ISIS and all that was to follow. Uh, but it it shows you this problem that we would like to think we've worked hard on something, we've solved the problem, we, we can move on now, it's gone. But this message is still attractive, uh, the groups are still resilient, and there's no end in sight to that dynamic, even though we've got it under control. We shouldn't frame it as being the biggest threat we're facing. It's certainly not, um, but it's not a threat that's going away.
0: You've mentioned several characteristics of groups that uh, sit on an extreme uh, but part of the, the political ideological continuum. Uh, and we had bands of you know, people joining up for a course, the of brothers having joined grievances against the world. If we, re- if we replaced the word... You know, Islamist with um, neo-Nazi or kind uh, of white supremacist or sovereign citizen, it starts to look pretty much the same, doesn't it? But it's a different set of ideology.
1: Yeah, there's very strong parallels uh, both at the individual sort of psychology level in terms of what attracts an individual, and at the uh, the sociological level of the, the of the movements and what it, what's the attractive. Uh, narrative of those movements. Uh, in in most respects, uh, if you can use a crude metaphor, that you know the DNA is ninety five percent the same. Um, the five percent difference is important, um, as, as we know <laughs> with, with DNA in the real world. Um, but the differences are less to do with the attraction and the way in which individuals uh, are recruited and radicalized, and less to do with the central narrative, which is one about being a victim. Um, of a vast conspiracy and the need to fight back and, and have a revolutionary change. The differences are in the way in which the social movements manifest. So Islamic state was different than Al-Qaeda. It grew out of Al-Qaeda. Uh, it broke with Al-Qaeda. Uh, as, uh, um was always um, on the edge of Al-Qaeda. He was welcomed for his success on the ground in Iraq, but, but not for his methods. And then, of course, with the setting up of Jabhat al-Nusra, uh, there was a, a break between the Jabhat al-Nusra, uh, al-Qaeda, Syrian operation, and what became Islamic State. Uh, and that led to um, those movements going two different directions. Islamic State innovated in uh, being less fussy about how it recruited, less fussy about how it did the filtering and, and, and the admission, uh, whereas al-Qaeda, you, you have to go through a very careful Filtering process before you were admitted, and then lots of indoctrination and training—a much more tedious process. Uh, people who went to the Al Qaeda camps in Afghanistan will report back that, you know, there's lots and lots of sort of religious studies and not much fun and action from their point of view. Uh, Islamic State instead said, "We saw this with the Lint Cafe of December uh, two, 2014. If you do something in our name, we'll make you a martyr," and they rewarded the gunman behind uh, the Lint Cafe siege by in in Tabiq magazine, declaring him a martyr, just as they did for the young Afghan man in Melbourne who in September attacked police officers. So uh, there was that shift, but the shift is even more dramatic with the so-called neo-Nazi or far-right movement where there is this element of viral marketing, do something in our name, but whereas Islamic State still had this concept of swearing an oath of allegiance, a bayat to uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi as the caliph, you know, of making a singular commitment. You didn't have to um, go through a membership process, but you still had to commit to that one organisation. With uh, far-right extremism, we're dealing with a, a virtual board. So the gunman, the terrorist behind the Christchurch attack in uh, March 2019, um, dabbled with known groups in Australia. He praised um, uh, Blair Cottrell and the United Patriots Front, but he didn't act in their name. He wasn't a signed-up member. Uh, He was live-streaming his attack to uh, supporters around the world. He was very conscious of of a virtual community. He wanted to read his manifesto that he posted. He wanted to watch his live stream video, um, and he narcissistically depended on their praise, which he's got in spades. Uh, But it it wasn't sort of a line-managed operation. He was really the classic lone actor. Uh, Islamic State's made a lot of uh, use of lone actor attacks um, but those lone actors have generally been lined up pretty well with um, loyalty to Islamic State and to the Caliph. With uh, a, a, attacks like the, the um, Christchurch attack, it was just uh, one man picking and choosing from a grab bag of far-right ideas uh, a different mixture than other people choose. You know, uh, some might choose eco-fascism elements, uh, always some white supremacist elements, of course, Um and always this theme of a great replacement of, of foreigners pushing us out, uh, but they do it as as individuals with their own agency, and uh, they don't have to answer to any discipline as long as they get an impressive um, uh, you know score of of, of bodies uh, that they can boast about. Then they're praised as being noble warriors, but it's it's the ultimate sort of narcissistic loner trip, and the ultimate. Uh, Zero to hero trip, something that that Islamic State understood, but which in right wing extremist movements is even more diffuse and harder to predict. It's, it's it's you know substantially different in the way it works at the social movement level.
0: It's rather interesting when we talk about lone actors, and some people use the term lone wolves. There, there's some academic thought around the place about the the notion of a lone wolf, someone who is a pure solo uh operative not being completely accurate because um, even someone who's a long long actor like a like the individual that committed the uh, terri- uh, terrorist activity in in Christchurch you uh, contact people who have got similar views you're exchanging ideas you're seeking some kind of uh, um, approval uh, or some kind of uh, validation from others. Uh, so we do you think we've moved away from the notion that, that a lone wolf means somebody that's completely been operating um, outside of a right-wing, well, let's just say an ideological ecosystem?
1: Look, I think, I mean, the way I'd for- explain it is this way, Tom, to... Um... And different people have the, the different framings, but I, I, I don't. Yeah. Li- I don't like the term uh, "lone wolf," not because it it doesn't have uh, historical um, legitimacy. It's precisely because it does. Uh, the first wave of modern terrorism came at the end of the nineteenth century with anarchist movements, and they were movements. I mean, anarchists. You know, here is the sort of Monty Python kind of irony about it. They they uh, you had individuals acting uh, as singular agents or small groups um, pushing back against the idea of authority, um, but that were conscious of belonging to a broader movement. And uh, so we had a series of uh, anarchist uh, attacks and assassinations, in- including um, uh, the assassination of, of Duke Ferdinand that led to the outbreak of the First World War. Um, so very consequential Um they like to use the language of lone wolf because it it portrays them as being some sort of noble warrior figure. Um, And the more recent lone actor attackers would like that same phraseology. So the reason I don't mention the names of individuals or call them lone wolves, I I don't want to play into their hands in uh, giving them attention or glorifying them. Um, But when you say lone actor, we're talking about uh, somebody, or maybe sometimes it's a couple of people, but, um, not a large network in terms of the execution of something and generally speaking, not a large network in terms of the conception and uh, and planning. It's it's one individual or, or perhaps a few with no warning to others going ahead and doing something. But almost invariably, they see themselves as members of a community, albeit a virtual community. So the 2011 uh, terrorist in uh, Oslo and Utoya uh, who has in some ways been the modern template of, of lone actor attacks um, yeah. saw themselves as as part of a community. Um, there was a failure probably to prosecute and investigate properly after the Oklahoma City bombing because although two men were charged, uh, there was a larger community involved and there and, and was a failure to to reckon with that. I can't think of any lone actor attacks where it doesn't appear to be the case that the actor, felt that they were part of a larger group. So whether it's the Pulse uh, nightclub attack in Orlando, Florida, or the Bastille Day uh, attack in Nice, France in 2016, um, and there's been many others, um, in, in those cases, they, they aligned themselves with the Islamic State. In the case of Christchurch, there wasn't a singular group to uh, make a connection with, but they saw themselves as, as I said, you know, the reason you try and live stream an attack and you write a massive manifesto is precisely because you're desperately concerned that people people recognise you and and that you you get that um, feedback affirmation from your group from your people even if if you haven't met most of them face to face.
0: I think it, it, it may be worth mentioning to listeners that there are uh, there are publications put out by groups like the Simon Wiesenthal Center, uh, based in the US, that do consider the the way in which. Uh, Certain groups, certain extremist groups deal with um, uh, the narrative surrounding those that commit certain acts. Uh, And I know there's certainly one on uh, far-right extremism that people can look at if they wish to explore it further. Now, uh, Greg, I'm very mindful of the time, but how uh, the one question that, that I do wanted to close with is this, this issue that's underlying the parliamentary inquiry and Senator Christina Keneally from, from the Labour Party, who's also on the uh, Parla- Commonwealth Parliament's uh, Parliamentary Joint Committee on um, Intelligence and Security, uh, mentioned the notion that Australia has not yet properly reckoned with what happened in March 2019 in Christchurch, given that the, the individual was Australian. Um, and an Australian that has been radicalised using various means, committing that act. act. Um, Is the Parliamentary Committee inquiry one way you think of uh, the community coming to terms with what happened or is more required?
1: I think with respect to the Christchurch attack, the uh, Royal Commission that was... um set up and ran for a year in its exhaustive investigations after the Christchurch attack and as just this last December we've seen the report come out the New Zealand Parliament's released it and and Mm -hmm. it's accessible it's online and there's um, a final volume of 44 recommendations which are clear and uh, easy to digest I think that's been a very productive process in in respect to um, Christchurch. I think that uh, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, which regularly uh, invites submissions, is one of the better things that we do in Australia. I think it's good that there's that regular process. Um, I think that they're genuinely open to taking on feedback. And it's interesting, in recent years, we've seen uh, organisations like ASIO make submissions to that committee, which of course, you know, a lot of material has to be classified, but they've also gone to the trouble of making non-classified versions of their submissions so the whole public can look at those things and read and understand. I think that's a healthy thing. I think the more that we have that open discussion, the better. I do think there is a problem that you're getting, you know, I think you're getting at, uh, Tom, with respect to far-right extremism, that we're still in the phase of struggling with the fact that it's not them attacking us, it's us uh, being the source of the attackers. Uh, I remember in Indonesia, after the October 12, 2002 Bali bombings, there were many politicians and other figures who were saying it must be some nefarious external actors or maybe even rogue military elements, uh, but it wouldn't be ordinary Indonesian Muslims doing this because it's just unimaginable. As it turned out, uh, the perpetrators were chased down, arrested, confessed. Uh, we got a pretty clear picture of what was going on with Jemaah Islamia. And then people began to internalise, no, we've got a problem. It's a domestic problem. It's us. Uh, It's not our mainstream groups. It's not what most Muslims believe, but it has come out of Indonesian Muslims doing this thing. And and the same way in Australia, I think we've got to face up to the fact that there are some Australians who take part in the same conversations that go around about what's wrong with our country and what we need to do, um, who go beyond just expressing strong opinions and actually... Justify a violent response, and part of the reason we haven't named this as clearly as we ought to uh, is because we're stuck in this uh, blindness of recognizing that from our own community a problem has arisen and, and facing up to the problem that's come sort of you know right adjacent to us. Uh, and I, I think so. I think that hopefully will change in time. It's interesting under the Trump administration, the Department of Homeland Security wasn't able to talk about uh, right-wing extremism. It's now this year under the Biden administration begun to do so because professionals who work in this space have a very clear sense of what they're dealing with. That's why the director general of ASIO has come out and spoken about Nazis in the suburb. He's spoken very directly as his deputy about the problem of hatred and uh, the fact that we've got uh, you know, a far right extremism that's homegrown, one that resonates with global movements, but it's homegrown. Our political leaders find it harder to face up to this but i think as a as a society we've got to work together with them and say let's let's call things what they are and face up to the problems we have otherwise we can't begin to deal with them if we can't name them
0: it's just partly a problem because uh australian there there might be a cohort of australians that have a deep prejudice against others but are, are blind to their own are blind to our own problems
1: Yes, it's very much partly the problem. It's not the only explanation. As as we were discussing earlier, uh, the social movement aspect of, of the far right is much more complex and messy than with a group like al-Qaeda, Islamic State, where, okay, somebody signs up, they, they become a loyal member, there's a pretty clear association. That's not the case with these movements by and large. But part of the problem is that we're dealing with white supremacy um, and uh, we're dealing with a framing... Of white Christians as victims and blaming others, including perversely uh, Indigenous Australians, uh, Asians, Muslims, Jews—you uh, name it—it's um, it's an ugly, hateful sort of thing. But it's because it comes from within our own family, from our own uh, white community that we're we're finding it so hard to speak up. We don't have a federal. Or even our state uh, parliaments, as diverse as our our society is, there's less diversity in national leadership, in, including in corporate uh, leadership in in corporate boards, but certainly in the federal government, uh, the federal parliament, than there is in Australian society. We have a hyper diverse society that that only is beginning to reflect um, the true richness of our identity in in public life. You know, it's beginning to shift in terms of faces on the evening news, uh, professional journalists. Um, And others, but it's still, uh, we're still dealing with the overhang of uh, the white Australia movement and the narrow and bigoted way it frames our thinking. Um, That leads to overt and deliberate racism, but it also leads just to sort of a a blindness to the problem. We've seen this recently with racism, we're seeing it at the moment with misogyny and sexism. Um, We often don't recognize the extent of the problem we're going to have to solve. because of, you know, we're we're a fish swimming through the water, not recognising the water that we swim in.
0: One final question, Greg. Um, You've outlined an interesting series of dilemmas. Uh, What role do you think um, better education, better, uh, better sort of framing of critical thinking in the secondary school years and um, throughout tertiary education, obviously, would do to help you know, quell some of the some of the issues we have in society uh, that result in people adopting extreme points of view.
1: Uh, well, let me sort of begin that the answer by you know g- going back to some of the points we discussed earlier, Tom. I think we've learned now uh, something of what doesn't work. So, framing anything really as a, as a war on drugs, war on terror, that doesn't help. Uh, having a sort of panicked, uh, hyperbolic response uh, that, that makes the problem bigger than it is doesn't really help. It's, it has been, actually it has perverse outcomes. So, uh, this is not terrorism is not an existential threat, but it is a resilient threat, and it's produced by in the case of both far-right extremism, but also by uh, when it comes to groups like Islamic State and al-Qaeda, by an ecosystem of hate, of othering, of saying that another group is not human, that only our group is fully human. And uh, another thing that we've learnt in dealing with terrorism is that so-called counter-narratives, whilst they seem seductively attractive, are less effective than we imagine them to be. So in other words, rather than arguing with people and saying, no, you're wrong, I'm right, let me tell you why, Um, better than a counter-narrative is an alternative narrative. And I think to uh, come back to answering your question, we need to recognise we're dealing with a large ecosystem of hate and bigotry and prejudice. And rather than, you know, telling school kids why neo-Nazis are wrong, we need to talk about what's positive. Why should we respect difference? Why why is living in a plural society good? Why uh, should we see difference as something which is positive rather than a problem? Why should we push back against any kind of exclusionary "us and them" framing, uh, which which dehumanizes others? If we if we do that in that very positive way, then we're contributing to a more healthy society, and that that would involve, by the way, uh, taking more attention on hate speech, incitement of hatred, hate crime, hate acts. Um, I've talked in the past about the need to, to uh, develop a national hate crime registry to listen to victims, not because we can solve everything and prosecute everything, we certainly can't, but if we listen to the experience of people that's been negative, we can begin to address those problems and, and make sure that we do better. We're seeing this at the moment in uh, in sporting public life uh, with football codes and other areas with respect to both racism and, and, and misogynistic sexism. Uh, we haven't got perfect responses, obviously, but we can see how we can make a difference so to go back uh, to the beginning let's think about who we want to be who we think we should be let's find a, a strong positive narrative about life in a you know sort of rich and diverse australian multicultural society that respects everyone regardless of their uh, orientation in, in an area of their life whether it's um in in, in um in who they live with, uh, how they look, the color of their skin—things that they can't change, of course. Uh, let's instead of just tolerating one another, let's actually celebrate each other, and let's 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 respect and uh, celebrate um, this diversity, and recognize that there are forces that are trying to uh, make it a problem, and they pull people down, and they and they. Um, uh, generate a hateful response which makes everyone smaller? And that's not the answer. Now, one of the things we're concerned about is uh, hateful responses that lead to violence, but we should be concerned about any kind of dehumanising, uh, even if it's a trivial everyday expression of racism or or, or um, uh, other sort of demeaning uh, bigotry. Uh, we need to think about who we really want to be and and point in that direction and make that part of what we focus our education around and then if we do all of those things we'll have a healthier society and we'll have less problem with violent extremism.
0: Oh, Greg, uh, yeah, I appreciate your time today before we uh, before we close off where can people see some of your research?
1: Well I, I on this last point I should point you to work that uh, my colleagues are doing at uh, the Alfred Eacon Institute. Um, and a simple place to start, a good place to start, is a website that my colleague uh, Dr. Matteo Vagani has put together called Tackling Hate. So, one word, tacklinghate.org. So, at tacklinghate.org, um, you can see a series of, of short interviews, um, essays, some data, some research projects, um, trying to make sense of the problem that we have in tackling hate in Australian society. This has come out of a Uh, centre that I'm involved with called the Centre for Resilient and Inclusive Societies uh, that has a a large uh, body of researchers at Deakin, but also at Victoria University, uh, at Western um, Sydney University, at uh, Queensland University and other institutions. Uh, So one place to start is tacklinghate.org. Greg, thank you so
0: much uh, for for your time today. We've covered an enormous amount of territory in around about uh, three quarters of an hour, I think now. Uh, So thank you for joining me.
1: It's been a pleasure, Tom. Thanks very much.
0: And uh, thank you. Um, And look forward to talking to you again at some point in time.
1: Thanks, Tom.